Okay, and welcome back then to Fast Ship Performance. I'm Tim Davies. I've got a podcast today because I've been cleaning out some folders, having moved house uh, about a year ago and uh, opening boxes and thinking about whether I actually need this stuff or not. I found something called an ASIMS. What is an ASIMS, you ask? Well, actually, I've just looked up on the internet because I wasn't too sure myself, but it's an air safety information management system. Uh, basically, it's a report you put in when something's happened in the air and you want to report it because we're very honest people when we're flying. And uh, it gets back to the squad and everyone can read it. It goes all across the Air Force, in fact. I think the entire military and people can read it. And you can uh, search for them. You can filter them. You can look for your own airplane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd obviously put one of these back in in 2013. I do remember it, actually, having just read it through. I'm going to read this to you because it's quite interesting. And the reason I think it's interesting or will be of interest to people is that I was on a, uh, a Skype call with a guy in Canada this morning who's trying to join the Royal Canadian Air Force. And he's passed the aptitudes and some other things. He's only 17. And uh, he's got an interview. And the interview is um, quite a difficult process out there. And it's kind of a screening interview, really. He needs to kind of get through that in order to carry on with his application. And he was asking me about what kind of questions they might ask him. Now, of course, this is Canada. This is not the UK. And of course, my interviews that I did were a couple of decades back, right? But I'm well in touch with what's going on with the Officer Aircrew Selection Centre and I follow that quite closely and I have a lot of um, people out there, people listening to this podcast that write to me and they talk about their experience, which is brilliant and I always make sure I return that email for them. So I was telling him a few things and one of the things he asked about um, was how to address things that may have not gone that well for him. So maybe he didn't get into that top sports team or maybe he didn't pass that exam first time. How does he deal with that? And what I was saying to him was, you've got to be honest, you've got to own that. You've got to, you've got to take ownership of it. You've got to take it on board. Remember what we talk about failure. Remember what I say with failure is first attempt in learning, F-A-I-L. It's your first attempt in learning. And I was trying to explain to him that everyone in aviation across the whole piece of whatever you're doing in any kind of professional performance industry has failed their way forward. You've got to fail unless you don't learn, right? We all know that, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a bit of a backstory to this. Having just read it, it's quite interesting. I, I remember I, I read this and I wasn't angry when I wrote it. Um, I know I wasn't angry, but we did shut the squadron down, I think, the following, uh, about, about two or three months after this was written. Now, this wasn't necessarily why we shut four squadron down and why we stopped all student flying back in early 2014. It was to do with something else. We had a report that we that I tried to get in and eventually commissioned something called an operational event analysis, which was run by the Royal Air Force Center for Aviation Medicine. And if you're out there in the Air Force or in the Navy or the Army, and it is tri-service, you can get onto the people down there, the psychologists down at the down at RAFCAM, Royal Air Force Center for Aviation Medicine. Just Google that, you'll find them, and you can request an operational event analysis. I believe it's called that. It may be called something else, but an operational event analysis. I might Google that right now as well. In fact, I've, I'm pretty sure I've still got the paperwork somewhere. I'm just going to search for that and really see, make sure I've got that title right. Because the reason that you'd ask one of these, it's a human factors report, and you'd ask for one of these, yeah, operational event analysis. So ours was done in December 2012, I think it was. So before this ASIMS, in fact. But I didn't think we actually stopped the flying until about 2014. Someone can probably correct me on that. The dates will blur into one. Um, and what happens uh, when these guys come up to your squadron and they've done watchkeeper squadrons, they've done... Uh, who else? I did loads of squadrons. Crikey, they've done a whole world and a lot of naval squadrons. They will come in and they do this for free. This comes out of RAFCAM for free. They come in and they will um, simulate. It, this is it's non-intrusive. So they will simulate that you've just had an accident. 
on the squadron, like literally that morning. They come in, nothing stops, everyone carries on flying, nothing happens. They just take up a room, there's normally two of them, and they will sit there and they'll start interviewing the squadron. And they'll go through the whole squadron if you want. You don't have to be interviewed. Some people didn't want to be on four and they didn't have to be, that's fine. And they will just sit down and they will talk to you about some questions and they will learn about um, the whole of the squadron, how it operates, how its human factors are, how the mentality is on the squadron, um, how the flight safety processes are there. And then they'll write a report for you. And the report they wrote for us on four, which has never really got off the squadron, uh, was 28 pages long. And it ends with um, how to break the chain, hazard management, um, some key transition points uh, that you can have to make the place better. Um, it goes into, uh, what does that stand for there? I'm going to have to Google here. So accident route matrix, it actually has at the back and it talks about uh, hazard entry. So the probability that any air crew would have entered a hazardous scenario and it goes on to the recovery. So the probability that the crew would have successfully recovered. It looks at escape. So the probability the crew would have escaped their injury and also survival. I, the probability the crew would have survived. There's a whole matrix and it comes out at the very bottom, and it tells you um, what you're doing right and, more importantly, what you're doing wrong. And, of course, on Force Squadron back in, well, 20, must be in 12, 13, 14, slash 15, really, they weren't good years. I was the officer commanding Sea Flight back then, which was the Central Flying School flight, um, which is basically the flight that trains the instructors, and then the instructors go and train the students. So I, I had a bunch of 12 of the most highly... Um, qualified guys you're ever going to find in the Air Force in fast jet training. And these guys, and they were all guys, we didn't have any girls in instructors at the time. Um, these guys would, uh, very down-to-earth guys, um, all selected obviously because of that, and they would go and teach the instructors how to teach the students. They were coming to me saying, look, we're not in a good place, Tim, and I recognize that. And because I'd been on a service inquiry into a fatality of um, a Red Arrows aircraft back in 2011, that was XR XR-X-ray 179 belonging to Flight Lieutenant John Egan, who crashed at Bournemouth, um, I think I believe it was the 20th of August in 2011. Because I'd been on that service inquiry, I'd met some psychologists there from RAFCAM and I'd spoken to them about the difficulties with the squadron and they'd offered this service that was free. Uh, they'd done, as I said, a lot of squadrons before. They've probably done a lot of squadrons since, of course, and they wrote a report for us. Now, when the report came in, it wasn't um, the most favorable report. Remember, Force Squadron, if you don't know anything about uh, United Kingdom military flying training system, but it was the first squadron really to stand up, flying squadron, as it were, to stand up under UKMFTS. You, uh, arguably, you could probably have done it another way by starting up the smaller squadrons first, and maybe a, um, an, an elementary flying training squadron. But those aircraft, those, those aircraft weren't ready to transition. We hadn't got the Grob in yet, the Grob 120TP, so the Hawks were the first squadron to... Um, to do that now the public accounts committee the national audit office have done a thing back in 2014 about this you can look it up on their parliament tv it will show you um the ceo of uh, ascent flight training paul livingston and uh some other people i can't remember who exactly it was at the time uh being spoken to by qc uh, stephen phillips and asking questions about UKMFTS. and you can go and have a look at that i'll try and drop that link into uh the podcast if you want and what this what this report actually did, because it was, of course, it was given to the boss of the squadron at the time, um, was pretty much say, look, you're not in a great place. And that's the truth. The squadron was not in a great place. Uh, what eventually happened, of course, is the squadron stopped flying. Uh, and it allowed me then to train all the instructors up because the problem was back then, going back into 2012, 13, um, we were very, I say we, the Royal Air Force wasn't, but unfortunately the contract with Ascent Flight Training was um, very output driven so there were financial incentivizations for if that is a word 
uh, well, a centre were, fin- were financially incentivized to um, get students out, basically. And that was one of the failings of the contract in to get students out, but not instructors out. That was a problem. So what we had was a very small amount of instructors just trying to teach all the students. It was a whole thing. It was a nightmare. So eventually we managed to get that stopped through intervention of this flight safety report. And if you are a boss or a flight commander or even just, you know, one of the one of the gas shags, one of the, one of the line pilots or one of these squadrons in the military still, and you're having struggles, whether you're within UKMFTS or not, it doesn't matter. You can be a frontline squadron, it doesn't matter. You can call up RAFCAM and you can request um, an operational event analysis. Now, that is a free flight safety audit of your squadron. And that's how I managed to get that onto our squadron by going to the boss and saying, boss, I've just sent you an email saying that we're offering, we're being offered the free flight safety report. Now, you have to formally reject that. And if, of course, you were as a boss to formally reject that and you were to have an accident, I believe we were going to have an accident back in 2012, 13. Well, then, of course... You know, you're not, what kind of boss would be able to do that? And of course the boss wasn't able to do that, of course. And so he had to allow that, not that he let that report off the squadron for many, many months afterwards, of course. Right, I'm going to read you what happened to me. And this is me being a dick. Um, so I was, as I said, OCC. I was um, the officer commanding all instructor training and standards on the squadron at the time. So one of three flight commanders. And I was quite recent. I remember the Hawk T2 when it came in, no one had really flown it before. We'd flown Hawk T1 had about a thousand hours in Hawk T1, but Hawk T2 had a lot of avionics inside it. It had TV screens, head-up display, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was just a different aircraft to operate than the Hawk T1, to be honest with you. It was, uh, I mean, it flew the same, but operating it, especially the radar work and everything else was difficult. So of course we were all kind of struggling a little bit. In fact, I remember, I've got a logbook in my office over my right shoulder here, but I remember one of the guys that I did a, an advanced radar workup on. So a radar workup for an instructor was on the advanced one. It was only five trips, um, but they were pretty hectic trips. And because these were instructors, me and this other guy were instructors trying to get worked up on this advanced radar sortie so we could teach it to students. Um, the problem was that because instructors weren't prioritized, me and this other guy, we did advanced radar one in something like October back in twenty. 14 and then advanced radar two was i think something ludicrous like august the next year so there's like it was like 10 or 11 months between the first and second trip of this five trip syllabus which is absolutely ridiculous you shouldn't have that if you're going to start a workup you need to get that stuff done like get it done in a week or two whatever so that's fresh in your mind so that was poor so what happened to me is i made a mistake and i wrote an asims about i wrote a flight safety report about the um the problem i had and I've always said this as well, own the problem, get out there, first attempt in learning, okay, if you do fail, get it written, get it out there so people can learn. So one of the problems with the flight safety report that this operation event analysis that we had is it it didn't get out there, it was sat on for a very, very long time until eventually it was leaked off the squadron somehow, and I don't know how that happened. It just did, shall we say. Right, so, so my thing, and I made lots of errors, don't get me wrong, um, but this one warranted a, an ASIM, so warranted putting in so people could hear about it and it was uh for me pretty benign and simple emergency but it could have killed someone it wasn't an emergency it was a an error on my part and so i wrote it up and this was november 13 so i, I think the squadron pretty much oh yeah that's right i remember this now i do remember this because the station commander was angry he was not a happy bunny and um i rightly so really because what i'd said was uh your most senior pilot on your base is telling people that he is not um, competent to operate basically which is damning for a station commander but hell he should listen to me right because um obviously i shut down one of his squadrons from how do you like those apples right 
So failure to apply parking brake resulted in uncommanded aircraft movement. There's there's a lot of pilots out there like nodding now. They're like, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. And I've done it as well. Don't get me wrong on other aircraft previous to this one. Or have I? I think I probably have. Or I've been in a jet when it's been done. This was actually me doing it. This wasn't me not... This wasn't me monitoring a student who did it. This was me actually in the front cockpit. Now, you have to remember, an instructor normally flies in the rear cockpit. But as an instructor of an instructor, so when I was teaching instructors, I'd have to pretend to be the student. So I'd have to be in the front cockpit, pretend to be a student with the baby instructor, the ex-typhoon or tornado pilot, in the back seat learning how to instruct. And I think I was doing that on this sortie. I'm pretty sure that was it. But I didn't get much front seat time because I was a flight commander on a squadron that was struggling. And uh, as you can imagine, when I did jump in the jet, I had to really kind of spin up and try and work out what I was doing. And of course, you do miss things. And on this thing, I missed it. And God, this is this is it's not nasty. And actually, if I remember correctly, the um, the liney, my engineer outside, he didn't care less. Uh, I had to, he, and he was a great, they're all great guys and girls uh, on four squadrons around the Air Force. They really are considerate. And I had to go and apologize afterwards. Absolutely. And he didn't, he didn't care at all, but I cared a lot. So here we go. Then. I'm going to read it straight out and then we're going to talk about it. Um, failure, to apply, failure to apply parking brake resulting in uncommanded aircraft movement. Uh, I was the front seat pilot of a Hawk T2 when the aircraft rolled forward after the ground crew removed the chocks during his walk around. I was able to quickly apply the foot brakes, arresting the aircraft and applied the parking brake, checking its application. Post-engine start and before the ground crew started his walk around, I'd indicated to him that the parking brake had been applied, but I'd failed to apply it and indeed had not checked that it had been applied. In evaluating my performance, I'm unable to say why I admit this check. The pressures are displayed in the head-up display and on the hydraulics page, although this page is not routinely selected at this stage on startup. According to the FRCs, which are flight reference cards, that's the checks um, that were used to start the jet, the parking brake is to be applied pre-strapping in on the initial checks and the pressures checked post-start on the after-start checks. My own airmanship dictates that I also check that it is applied as the engine starts. This means that I had missed its application three times. I have recently taken over as OCC flight, that's Officer Commanding of Sea Flight, the Officer Commanding All Instructor Training and Standards on the squadron. And this has required me to move from the rear QFI seat to the front student seat where I instruct the new instructors on the squadron. The move, the QFI stands for Qualified Flying Instructor, by the way, sorry. Um, the move through necessity has come earlier than I would have been comfortable with, and I've been made, and I've made my command chain aware of this. Although I have previous Central Flying School instructional experience from the Hawk T1, my hours on the Hawk T2 are low, 180 hours total over a period of 23 months, of which 25 of these are instructional. I only had 25 instructional hours on the jet, and I was the officer commanding all instructor training as standards. I must have been a legend going back to 2013. <laughs> Yeah, that is not a good amount. Jeez. I re it's not. If, an, if one of my instructors had told me I had 25 hours on the jet, I'd be really concerned on instructional time. I would have been in 23 months. Wow. I routinely find that I have to invest a significant amount of time pre-sorted to be able to present a convincing blogs or student for the new instructor to practice his instructional technique on. In fact, some of the errors that I make are genuine errors, and I'm open about this with a new with a new instructor. Credibility aside, this is far from ideal. I believe that I am not as familiar as a flight commander would normally be with an aircraft type, and that this is due to the fact that they would traditionally be returning onto a previous type, whereas the Hawk T2, because it is only recently entered service, has few pilots with any experience on it. The cockpit has three multi-function displays, they're like small TV screens, which require setting up on startup. 
The squadron does not have a firmly defined way of doing this as the MFDs are set differently depending on what particular sortie you are flying. For most students, as they move through a phase, they become familiar with that particular phase's requirements and practice allows them to set cockpit avionics up the most, uh, what is that, up the way that they prefer and in a timely manner. For an instructor flying in the front seat, a rare occurrence for most as SCT, which is staff continuation tra- flying or training. Staff continuation training is um, when an instructor um, or a staff mate on the front line, a pilot on the front line, takes a jet up and just practices disciplines so they don't get rusty. Okay, So they might fly a few circuits and do some low level and some air combat or something just so they don't get rusting. And that normally happens on a, a flying training unit because normally the student flies all the sortie and the instructor never flies much of it at all. I will go back. For most students, as they move through a phase, they become familiar with that particular phase of requirements and practice allows them to set the cockpit avionics up the way that they prefer and in a timely manner. For a QFI flying in the front seat, a rare occurrence for most as SCT is traditionally not being prioritised on the squadron, the process is not so routine. I can only think that at this time, I was prioritising an expeditious, expeditious start over the safety of the aircraft and ground crew. I want to come back to that in a second. That I should make much an uh, that I should make such an error, especially as a flight commander, is to me quite abhorrent. But I hope that this may serve as a wake up call to fellow instructors. I'm convinced that I have allowed my flying competence to become my lowest priority, whilst I have been struggling to manage student and QFI training on a developing squadron, and all the time battling with the intricate intricate complexities of UK MFTS. Recent developments mean that the squadron QFI should be able to fly more SCT, and I'm hoping that. As we all become more familiar with the aircraft, these incidents will become rarer. I, for one, will attempt to invest more time pre-flight and place more importance on minimising distraction across the squadron. Right, I now know why the station commander was annoyed at me. Fair enough. I think any other pilot out there is like, dude, what are you doing? You rolled that grenade right in there with the pin out. Now, here's the thing. So what have I said here? About SCT, yeah, I've gone here. For a QFI flying in the front seat, a rare occurrence for most, as SCT has, so this is staff continuation training. This is where you do your own training outside of training students. Has traditionally not been prioritized in the squadron. The process is not so routine. Uh, yeah, that's very true. So, what, And this is true at the time. And I remember saying to the boss and the station commander, look, we've got to get these uh, instructors flying. We've got to get them flying on their own because um, they're going to make mistakes. And of course, the guy that made a mistake to highlight the whole thing was me. Which actually is not a bad thing, you know, fall on your sword, right? Hopefully um, the other guys, well, they did. They got more SCT after this, that's for sure. Uh, and I've said here, I'm convinced that I've allowed my flying competence to become my lowest priority whilst I've been struggling to manage student and QFI training on a development squadron and all times battling with the intricate complexities of UKMFTS. Yeah, and that is absolutely friggin' right. And this is the big thing I want to get across to people. We can all stay quiet if you want to, yeah? And you can watch your friends flying to the ground because that is that will happen and that's happened in my career over the last two decades, okay, we've all stayed quiet and people have died. Or you can speak up, like in this. You can embarrass yourself a little bit, all right? Okay, so I'm embarrassed. What, I was the most senior flying instructor in the Royal Air Force at this point when it comes down to fast jet flying training, and I still wrote this. I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not embarrassed about it. Yeah, I left a freaking parking brake off, whatever, almost ran over my ground crewman as he took the chocks out. You know, six tons of jet that's going to kill people, all right? But I still wrote it down. Because I realised that by doing this, it allows other people in the squadron to do exactly the same thing. So you've got to own your mistakes. You've got to highlight them. It doesn't matter, okay? I mean, everyone's failing out there. You've got to be the person that fails and put your hand up and says, I got it wrong, you know? But because you're admitting, you're, you're, you're admitting the fact that you got it wrong means that the next person doesn't have to do that, you know? They don't have to make that mistake. 
And that ground crew guy doesn't have to lose a thumb or something from, or lose a leg from me running six tons of jet over him, okay? And his life is changed forever because of me being a dick because no one actually admitted this first. I remember I had a friend a long time ago, actually. He was flying elementary flying training when we had something called the Firefly, the Sing Slingsby Firefly, a little yellow airplane with a black underside to it. Um, great little airplane. I really liked it. Uh, quite a powerful thing. And he came back from one sortie. Um, and I met him in the bar, I think, in the evening. And I said, how was your trip today? He said, oh, I kind of messed up, dude. I said, oh, what'd you do? He goes, I left the flaps down for my entire aero sequence. <laughs> so I was like, dude. He's like, I know. I was like, well, did you tell anyone? He's like, no, I kept it quiet. Now, here's the problem. When you, so you get airborne, I think in, in, I don't know how you do it in the Firefly anymore. I think it was like mid-flap or half-flap. I don't know what they called it. Not full-flap, obviously, but he hadn't put his flaps up. And then he's gone and done a full aerobatic sequence, which must have been quite hard, drag-wise, having like half-flap or something. And obviously by doing that, he's, he's probably overstressed the flaps, you know? But then he's come back and he's known about the area and he's landed the jet, the jet, I call everything a jet, landed the light piston aircraft and he hasn't told anyone about it. And that meant that that jet, that piston, whatever you call it, that firefly, whatever it's called, uh, has sat on the line and someone else has gone and flown it. And of course it well mean, it well have been overstressed. So, you know, we know now why that's the wrong thing to do. We know now why we should come down and admit it and say, I made a mistake there. And then we should analyze and review the things that led us into making that mistake. So what was it that we did or didn't do that ended up making the mistake? And that's what flying instructions about is there. We're sitting there in front of the student and the student comes in. He says, I've done this wrong because you know we believe in honesty and integrity. So come on, hook it out. What is it? Talk to us. And they might say, I did this. I missed this fuel call. And we don't chastise them for that. We don't rip them apart for that. I've missed fuel calls. A fuel call is where you're supposed to call your fuel to the flight lead so that the flight lead knows how much fuel you're burning in relation to them and they know when to go home. Um, you miss a fuel call, fine. You know, I've missed loads in my time. But then we look at the student with him and we look at the, um, the event and we say, or her, of course, and we say, so what led you to being preoccupied with something else and missing that fuel call? Now, what is it? What is it that stopped that? So we can we can be angry. We can nothing's good's going to come of that. I mean, especially when a guy's or girl's in phase four fast jet flying training. They've been training now in the air force for three, four years. You're not going to sack someone for that for crying out loud. You know, you're going to work out how how we can move forward out of this thing and what is it that's that's gone wrong. So that's the thing. You know, it's being open about your errors so everyone can learn from them. And that's what this ASIMS was about. And that's what the operation event analysis was about as well. It's like. All right, you know, I remember at the time thinking, boss, you're not seeing what we're seeing. You know, the squadron is in a bad way. We actually had an Australian, I think it was an Australian Hornet pilot. He might have been an Australian Hawk guy come over and fly with us as a back seat. And we had a very close aboard in air combat. I wasn't in the sortie, but there were some of my top guys were in the sortie. And it was a very, very near, you know, they, they, they could well have, uh, we could have well lost two Hawks very early on. You know, two brand new Hawk T2s. There's only 28 of these airplanes. We could have lost two of these. And believe me, if we'd lost a Hawk, on four squadron, the whole of UKMFTS would have stopped. It would have ground to a halt and people would start asking questions. That may well have been the best thing, but then people would have died and that's never a good thing, all right? So we don't want that to happen. And I remember the Australian guy talking about it, a very mature guy saying, this is not safe, guys. What you're doing isn't safe. Now, for the Royal Air Force to be told by the Royal Australian Air Force that what we're doing is not safe, you know, you listen to that. There's some good people out there. We had, ex we had exchange pilots from the Royal Australian Air Force on our squadron at the time. Um, but this guy was here on a visit, but you know, when you listen to another air force like that and they're telling you you're not safe, you, you don't, you know, you don't roll over. You actually listen to what they're saying. You do something about it. And that really was what got me thinking about what we were doing on the squadron and whether it was safe or not. Uh, the whole workup, the whole way ascent were running their systems and stuff, which was, which was, which wasn't great. 
I don't know whether there's any better. I've, I've been out of it for a year now. I hear stories, but you know, I don't, I don't want to comment on that stuff. But um, this was, uh, you know, the, the the event analysis we put in, this report we put in, did eventually stop the squadron for six months. I think it was early 2014 uh, after it got leaked into higher authority, and that allowed me then to train all my instructors up for six months. So good came out of that. And good comes out of things when you're honest and you're open and you're authentic with the errors. So that's what I'm trying to say. And you know, these podcasts are about that, is trying to get people to, you know, really open up and have a look at what they're doing. So I hope you learned something from this today. What is that, 25 minutes? That's nothing. I'm going to stop that. There was a podcast I heard the other day from someone that was four and a half hours. I mean, what do you do for four and a half hours? When do you eat? When do you go and use the the lavatories? What, What are you doing? Four and a half hours. I think... Maybe there's some ego got into that one. Right, I'm going to leave you guys. I hope that works out for you and you've learned something from that. Uh, Main takeaway then from today, if you've done something wrong, put your hand up, learn from it. All right, get it out there, socialize that because you do not want to be on a squadron that has a fatality, okay? Because of something you hadn't said when you could have done so. Miserable. And if you are there on a, on a squadron out in the Air Force or the Navy or the Army, and this obviously is for UK forces, um, as I said, there is the, um, the Royal Air Force Centre of Aviation Medicine. If you give them a call, uh, just Google it, you find some numbers. There's some psychologists down there that will come out to you. It might be a bit of a delay because I know they're busy, and they will do what's called an operational event analysis. It's a human factors report. I wonder if I can read you something from the beginning of that report, uh, if I can just find that again. Here we go. Uh, I'm not going to read you, obviously, everything that happened on the squadron. That's ridiculous. That is um, commercial incompetence. Uh, but let me have a look here. If you if you do want this report, I've got a phone number here. You can give me. A, I can give it to you. You can give them a call. I've got an email as well for you. So just um, just PM me or whatever, or send me an email, Tim at fastjetperformance.com. Some of you guys have done that already. You know who you are. So I'm sorry to work out whether they. Yeah, so basically it just says that the Centre of Aviation Medicine was tasked by the squadron to identify uh, and investigate any human factors issues involved in the operations of Force Squadron at RF Valley. Uh, it was December 2012, and then they have the results um, come down below, which should be disseminated to the entire of the United Kingdom military flying training system. This report should have gone out to every single squadron that is operating within UKMFTS, and it didn't, okay? It never has. From my knowledge, it never has. These are the sort of things that should be getting around so you don't repeat the same mistakes that were that were on four squadron at the time during a very, very difficult build phase. Okay, I had to go and see a psychologist twice during that thing. I'm not a psychologist kind of guy. What's going on there? Guy tried to ground me for 30 days. And in fact, I'm a, well, I was about to go for a third visit. And he said, you know, if, if you come and see me again, I'm going to have to stop you flying. You think I want to see him again? No, of course I didn't. I just lived with the, the mental trauma for the next couple of years. And why not? That's what we do, right? Okay, guys, I'm going to leave you there. Thanks so much. Anything you need, give me a call then. Tim at fastjetsperformance.com. Uh, um, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.